And now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 11, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and give you thanks for your word. And I ask you that you deliver us from all distraction today. Deliver us from error. Purify us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, if you ever happen to travel to the Middle East and are invited to dinner with someone, be sure to keep your left hand in your lap. Only eat with your right hand. Don't reach into the food. Don't don't touch food with your left hand. The right hand, of course, in that culture is assumed to be cleaner than the left hand. The left hand is associated with managing various bodily functions. So the left hand is thought to be uh, unclean. And, and so since much of the food is made to be prepared, it's, it's prepared to be eaten with your hands, you eat with your right. It's an insult to reach into a communal dish with your left hand. Now, I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're left-handed. I don't know what you're supposed to do if you don't have a left hand, um, or I'm sorry, a, a right hand, uh, and I don't know how that works at all. If you lose your right arm to an accident, do you, do you starve or you eat with a straw? I don't, know, I don't know what you do. But in some Northern European countries, on the other hand, you don't eat with your hands at all. Like Norway, you use a fork and a knife for everything, even sandwiches. When they have fast food restaurants over there, the people get Big Macs and they just go at it with a knife and a fork. You eat everything with a knife and a fork. Of course, the knife is in your right hand, the fork is in your left hand, and, and that's how you go at it like a civilized person, right? Some Southeast Asian countries eat with forks and spoons. Not forks and knives, forks and spoons. But you're never to put the fork in your mouth. You cut what you're eating with the, uh, with the fork and you move it over to the spoon and only the spoon goes into your mouth. You don't, you don't put the fork in your mouth. In Japan, of course, they don't use knives or spoons or forks. Uh, they use chopsticks, which, which have this whole, this whole culture of manners and customs associated with, with chopsticks. Uh, don't, uh, don't stick your chopsticks straight down into the rice bowl because it looks like funeral incense. Obviously, that's a bad omen. You don't, you don't do that. You don't do that at all. Don't pass food from your chopsticks to another person's chopsticks. Obviously, that's a bad idea. You know why, right? It's because in certain funeral rituals, they pass bones from chopsticks to chopsticks with, with you know, using those utensils. So you don't do that, right? That's obvious, right? That's why you just, oh, no, it's not obvious. It's not obvious at all. Um, don't, don't rub your chopsticks together to get the splinters off. That's, that's rude. It implies that your host gave you cheap chopsticks. So you don't, you don't do that. You don't do that at all. You barbarian, what are you doing? And so while we're on the topic of, of cutlery, there, there are certain tribes in Nigeria where it's taboo for women to use spoons. You don't give a woman a spoon. 
you know, because spoons make your women all uppity. And, and this inevitably leads to anarchy. Inevitably, if you give a woman a spoon, it will lead to the overthrow of our civilization. And obvious, right? That's, that's so obvious. You know that, right? These all sound pretty silly from our perspective. Maybe we can understand a few of them. Uh, but, but you and I, we have our own customs and manners, our own definition of what is polite at the table and what is not polite. Th these things, though, are not always intuitive, and there's no obvious reason for some of them. There's no obvious reason why we're not to put our elbows on the dinner table, except mom says don't do that. And, and again, if mom says don't do it, we respect her and we, and we don't do it. But there's no, there's no intuitive reason. There's no obvious reason for why that is impolite. Uh, but, but these manners are, are developed over the generations as we communally encourage certain behaviors and we discourage others. At the same time, it can be very intimidating to be an outsider coming into an unknown community, a different culture, or even a different family. You might have, you might have eaten supper with a family before that y they had a whole list of things they did and didn't do that you did not understand at all and know when to do when to do what and how to do it, how to behave. It's not easy, especially when the things in the culture that we're coming into is very different from our own way, when, when they're not easily understood and when they're not openly explained, which is why we always must be extremely gracious and extremely patient with people who don't know our rules, who don't know our customs. And we, we do this as families, as churches, as Americans, we must never elevate our cultural preferences or customs to a status equal with God's law. These may be fine things that help us get along in society, but, but they're not God's law. And we need to understand there's a separation there. But it's so easy. It's so easy to blur the lines. What does God require and what's just a good idea for us now? The, these things, these manners and customs all start out as a way of loving your neighbor, a, a, a way of showing politeness and kindness. But give them a few generations and they become codified and they become calcified even where you can't even question them. You don't know why you started doing them, but you do them and now they're, they can't be questioned and now they are the standard. And then you'll find people who are unkind and unloving and downright rude in their application of the standard. So, so if the purpose of table manners is loving each other, if the purpose of the, the original purpose of table manners is allowing everyone to enjoy this good food and drink in peace and harmony, we violate that peace and harmony by treating people with cold disapproval or disgust when they breach our standards. Love of neighbor is the point of manners, not the custom itself. The, these, these things don't exist for themselves. They exist for the love of neighbor. There, there's a great story. It's gone around for years, and you've probably heard half a dozen preachers tell it, but I, it's, it's a good story, so it's worth repeating. There was a young man who was invited to church, had never been to church before in his life. He was in a college town and really didn't know the Lord, but he was invited to a church, and he came late, 
and the, the pews were full and he, didn't, he couldn't find a place to sit and, and, and the service had already started, people were singing. So he came down the aisle and just sat on the carpet in front of the, uh, in front of the pulpit, just in the front area of the church. And everybody's kind of like, can you do that? Is that okay? Are you allowed to do that? And, uh, and, and then from the back of the room, a very well-dressed elderly gentleman, a deacon of the church came and walked down the aisle and everybody turns like, okay, is there about to be a confrontation? Are we about to see something go down here? The, uh, the deacon came down the aisle and, uh, you know, crossed his legs and sat down on the carpet next to the young man and shared his hymnal with him. And everybody sort of grinned and went back to, back to worshiping. That, that may have never happened, but it makes such a great story. I'd like to pretend that it did. And it illustrates how we must hold some of our cultural expectations loosely when we come into contact with people who don't know our cultural expectations, when they don't know what we do and how we, how we do it. How we're to be gracious and welcoming. And at, and at some point, you might say, well, you know, this is how we do things around here, and this is why we do it. But we do it in such a way that we keep the primary principle, the love for God and love for neighbor, that we're uh, commanded to keep intact, we, we do that. Which, which is why it's always necessary for you. If, if you see a visitor or a guest, you know, not knowing what to do with the bulletin or the hymnal, you say, I'm a, I'm a priest, I help people worship. That's my job, I'm called to be a priest. And so I'm going to help them. I'm not going to laugh at them. I'm not, I'm not gonna be nervous for them and say, oh, that's awkward and, and not help them at all. No, I, I, I stand next to them and I help them. I help them worship. That's what we do. But all this is relevant because at this point, in Luke's gospel, we find Jesus again at a dinner table. We've seen him so often at a dinner table in this gospel. Uh, he eats his way through the gospel of Luke. And it's at, at the dinner table where uh, all of this great instruction takes place. He's making his way down to Jerusalem, remember. And the closer to the city he gets, the more intense the opposition to his mission is going to be. On this day, he's invited to dinner by a Pharisee. And when he goes to the house of the Pharisee, Luke tells us very matter-of-factly, he goes in, he sits down, and he eats. There's something that he missed. There's something he forgot. But, uh, of course, Jesus doesn't ever forget to do anything. Jesus doesn't let anything slip his mind. Everything is deliberate. And so Jesus deliberately breaks a rule here. He breaches a custom, a time-tested, long-held custom of the Jews. He does something here that the Pharisees consider to be very bad manners, worse than putting your elbows on the table, worse than rubbing your chopsticks together. He doesn't go through a ceremonial washing ceremony before supper, that, that ceremony that all good Jews would have practiced. This purity ritual of cleansing your hands, it didn't have much to do with hygiene. It was a cultural expectation set in the interest of ceremonial cleanliness. Before eating anything, Jews went through a baptismal ritual of pouring clean water over their hands to wash off the defilement of the world. You have come into contact with the world, which is sinful, which is unclean. And so therefore, before you can sit down to eat, you must wash the world off your hands. Not simply germs or bacteria, but the world. There's a very uh, a Gnostic kind of approach to the world that underlies this, this practice. But 
But this doesn't come from the law of Moses, you know. This was all detailed in the Mishnah. This was in later writings that the Jews held uh, as sacred and important. And it would be expected of a Jewish rabbi to know this ritual and to follow it. They expected him to know exactly what you're supposed to do when you come to a house and sit down to eat. Imagine if an English professor purposely uh, missed subject-verb agreement in a formal paper. Imagine if a professional golfer yelled at his competitor when he was in the middle of his backswing. Imagine if a health inspector at a restaurant fished food out of the garbage and sent it out of the kitchen. It's, it's this level of you don't, you don't do this. You know better. You know way better than to do this, Jesus. What, what are, you, you know what you're supposed to do. And Jesus instead, rather than following the ritual, he comes to the table without stopping first. And he does this, and I love this boldness. I, I, I love this courage that he models for us because some of men's rules need to be broken. When the rule becomes more important than the principle it's designed to uphold, or the original principle is forgotten altogether, or when the expectation of those who follow the rules slavishly, when their expectation is so mean-spirited and heavy-handed, the only way you show how ridiculous it is, is to break the rule, to breach the expectation. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The, the Pharisees had this concept of purity that was central to their world. Purity was an institution. It was a social construct. That, that sought corporate national salvation through obedience to this extra-biblical purification code. The idea they had was, if you're pure in all of these ways, if we keep ourselves clean in all of these ways, Yahweh will be pleased with us and the kingdom will come. But these laws of purity were so onerous, they were often very heavy burdens which if you're going to live a normal life, you've got to find a way around. You've got to, you've got to find some loopholes. You, you're always looking for, for avenues to exploit, to get around it, not only in your own laws, but eventually that leads you to look for loopholes in God's law, ways out of obeying God. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 extra ordinances beyond what God had required. And Pharisaism had become this heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness, which was, which was deeply flawed. One writer lists several defects. He says, number one, in this kind of situation, new laws continually need to be invented for new situations. There's no way that you can cover everything all the time. And so they're always coming up with new, niggling little additions to their, to their expectations. Number two, accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. You start fearing what other men think rather than fearing God and what he requires. Number three, it reduces a person's ability to personally discern and exercise wisdom. There, there are certain Christians who fall into this category who just want to be told what to do. Just tell me what to eat, what to drive, what to wear, where to go, and what I can't do. And that way I never have to exercise wisdom and I never have to decide anything for myself. Just tell me what to do. And so this very rule-following kind of mentality sets in that, that pushes out grace and pushes out the need for wisdom. 
It produces a judgmental spirit, number four. Number five, the Pharisees confuse personal preferences with divine law. And this is one of the big deals that Jesus is going to address here. It produces inconsistencies. God's law is consistent, but ours isn't. And it's always contradicting other things that we, we decree. Number seven, it creates a false standard of righteousness. So now we've piled up things that, that we can live by and we can do, but God has a different standard. And, and so we, we have this false standard of, of righteousness. Number eight, he became a burden. And nine, it was strictly external. It didn't address any of the heart. And, and so Jesus goes out of his way to break this artificial code. And when he does it at this dinner table, the sense of dis- disapproval is palpable. You could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Did you just see what he did? Were you watching? This man claims to be a rabbi. He didn't baptize his hands before he came to the table. He didn't, he didn't go through the purification ritual before coming to the table. The air is thick with disappointment. So Jesus responds in verse 39. The Lord, I love, I love how Luke just, just gets that in there. Remember who we're talking about? We're talking about the Lord, right? We're not talking about some rogue rabbi. We're talking about the Lord. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Their religion, Jesus points this out, you're only worried about external appearances. You're you're only worried about keeping up this air of respectability. You you just want to look like you're obeying the law. It doesn't really matter whether you are obeying it with your heart. You're concerned about appearances. They're concerned about what you do. Jesus says, I'm also concerned about who you are. I'm I'm not just concerned about what you do. I'm concerned about who you are. Externals are important, but don't ignore the heart. You're majoring on these outward practices of purity, such as, such as ritual washings, but you're neglecting to purify the filth and the wickedness and the hatefulness inside. And so it's possible to fake obedience under such a legalistic uh, uh, structure. It's possible to act right. But, but what kind of law are you following if you can obey it fully and still have hatred and evil in your heart? Is that, is that really transformative? Is, is that really doing what you want it to accomplish? Jesus said, the creator of the outside is also creator of the inside. God is definitely interested in the purity of your behavior. Jesus isn't denying that at all. But the greater concern is being purified from within. It is that inner cleansing, that inner purity, that will inform and instruct and direct the external purity. So Jesus makes an interesting statement about charity here. This little comment about almsgiving, it looks kind of out of place when he says, you know, give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. In so many words, he's saying, if you all were able to give freely out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, if you were able to give to those in need, that cleanses everything. That purifies everything. You want a purification ritual? Uh, here's one. Don't be selfish. Don't look for loopholes for why you shouldn't give to the poor and needy, but be purified by giving. Treat others like they're your responsibility. Start there. Treat others like they're your family. 
collapse, destroy this attitude of superiority and humble yourself. That's the kind of purity the father's interested in. You want to talk about purity, start, start there. Well, Jesus can certainly read their minds and hearts. And so as he says this, surely there's somebody, at least one person in the audience who, who says, well, what's he talking about? I tithe, I give, I, I'm, I'm gracious. Well, Jesus continues. He answers that, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. So yes, you are tithing, but in actuality, your practice of tithing actually makes a mockery out of what God has required of you. God commanded tithing as a joyful offering of love. Look at the abundance of increase that God has given me. How can I keep this all for myself? I need to show God how thankful I am for this harvest. So I give out of my increase to God's house, his storehouse, so that uh, the, the work of the temple and so that the, can go on and so that people can be, can be fed. That is, the, that is the spirit of tithing. But what are they doing? This precise calculation of every seed, of every leaf, of every herb, it was burdensome. It was not required by God's law. And it's really quite obnoxious. One commentator suggests that the reason they did this was also driven by their purity concerns. Again, everything is driven by this, this weird concept of purity that they're holding. They didn't want to eat unclean food. And only food that had been tithed on, they thought, was clean. Again, making up requirements that God had not. And so when Jesus calls them out on this, he's, he's purposely being silly here, you, he says, you tithe on mint and rue. Have you ever had mint growing in your yard? Mint grows. Mint grows everywhere. Rue is a bitter herb. Again, it's a weed. It grows everywhere. This is not an expensive thing that they're tithing on here. Rue was a bitter herb that you, you kind of mix it with oil, and it makes kind of a, a dip for bread, and, and you might use it in other cooking applications, but rue is not expensive. Mint is not, it's not, mint is not some exotic spice. It grows in your yard. You know, rue grows in your yard. And Jesus says, look at what you're doing. You're tithing weeds. You're, you're tithing grass, basically. And, and, and this, this is, and you think this is righteousness. You think this is what I require. Jesus admonishes them for doing this and forgetting to demonstrate love and justice. This is what happens when you let your heart become consumed with trivialities, with petty things. You overlook the most important things. Jesus says, I don't want you to stop tithing, but remember why God requires it and what kind of people tithing creates, what, what this is intended to make you. Uh, this is to, 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 to change you into and transform you into gracious, loving, thankful people, compassionate people. He also corrects them for the way that they love the spotlight. They love public recognition. They love to receive all kinds of honor. They love to be the center of attention, and they neglect the kind of humility that leads, again, to repentance. He says, again, there's, this, uh, there's another phrase here that 
we have to stop and, and focus on. He says, you're like graves which are not seen. And the men who walk over them are not aware of them. What was he talking about there? The Pharisees, of course, were deeply concerned about the impurity that comes from coming into contact with a dead body. So then they would not want to unknowingly go near a grave or anywhere where somebody had been buried. They didn't want to walk near it or over it lest they come into contact with a dead body and contract impurity. But after a people lives in a land for so many centuries, generation after generation, there's bound to be bodies buried in places that people have forgotten. There are bound to be graves buried in places that are not marked. So there was an effort to mark and acknowledge everywhere that there might have been somebody buried. And you can imagine walking from one town to another at some point becomes like weaving your way through a minefield. Like, I don't want to step there. I can't step there. Where do I go? I can't step over here because there might be dead bodies there. Jesus turns this whole thing around. This was just another burden that the Pharisees were laying on the people uh, about even where they could walk and where they couldn't walk. Again, this is not in God's law. This is in their law. And so Jesus turns this around on them and says, you know what? You're like unmarked graves. That's exactly what you're like. You make men impure just by walking past you. <laughs> your wickedness is infectious. In all of your striving for purity, what you're actually doing is making yourself and others impure. Again, this is something we see so often. This, this commentary on human behavior is so insightful because in our sin, we are our own worst enemy. When, when we've got our minds scrambled like this, we achieve the opposite of what we're after. We, we do the opposite. We work against our own best interests. We sabotage ourselves. It's like we're sitting on a branch and, and cutting off the branch that we're sitting on. The very thing we want is withheld from us by our own wickedness. And the harder we strive sinfully for it, the further away we get. Sometimes a man may want a good thing, but he has to be obnoxious about it. He has to be kind of a jerk about it. And, and he's obnoxious toward everyone and he doesn't get the thing he wants because nobody can work with him. Wanting purity or wanting something good, he defiles everyone and everything by his wickedness and his terrible attitude. And that's what Jesus is commenting on here. You, you think you've got all this worked out, but you're making everybody impure by your behavior. Now, the next part of this is really funny. If I were in a room and Jesus were just really letting somebody have it, I mean, if, he, if I were in a room and heard Jesus say these things that he just said, you know what I would say? Nothing. That's what I would say. <laughs> you, you know, if... There's always this one kid in the classroom, y'all who are teachers, this one kid who can't keep his mouth shut. No matter what's going on, he can't, and parents, you know this too, there's one kid in the family who, when the thing to say is nothing, they, they, don't, they don't know how to be quiet. They speak up. Well, well this, uh, this lawyer speaks up, verse 45. Uh, one of the lawyers answered and said to him, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and he said, it's like Jesus said, what, what part of that did you think didn't apply to you? <laughs> you're, you're here, and I'm, I'm talking about this very problem. So verse 46, he said, woe to you also, lawyers. You want some of this? I got some for you too. Woe to you also, lawyers, 
For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve of the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which are shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Jesus charged them with laying heavy burdens on other men that they were not willing to carry. Let me give you an example of this. They said, okay, what, is, what does the Lord say about the Sabbath? He says, you know, don't do your ordinary labor on the Sabbath and let men, the men who work for me, let your servants, let your household rest on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day. But, but they took this further. They taught that a man on the Sabbath may not carry a load in his right hand or his left hand or in his bosom strapped to him or on his shoulder in a bag, but, and I'm quoting here from the rabbinical source, he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear or in his hair or in his wallet if the mouth is facing downwards. You know, you can carry it just so long as you might lose it. Uh, Or between his wallet and his shirt or in the hem of his shirt or in his shoe or in his hand sandal. So you can carry anything just as long as you look ridiculous doing it. That's basically the law. That's basically what it said. It's, it's, it's silly. Now, now God said, don't carry out your normal labors on Sunday. And, and there are applications of this in the scriptures. In fact, Jeremiah says, don't carry anything into the city. Don't carry anything into Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. But God doesn't say you're not supposed to carry anything ever on the Sabbath. And even if he did, let's say God did say, don't ever pick anything up on the Sabbath, which he didn't say, but let's say God said that. What is all this extra nonsense about how you carry it in your hair, in your ear, in the hem of your shirt, in your wallet, if it's upside down? What, what, what is this? Multiply this all. This, this is just one regulation now. Multiply all of this by all the regulations of the law. Ordinary people have no chance of obeying what God requires of them or what these people say God requires of them. Ordinary people have no chance. You're always going to get caught. You're always going to do something wrong. You're, oh, oh, I thought I could have it, you know, I I thought I could have it on my left shoulder. No, no, no. You can stick it in your ear. You can stick it in your shoe, but not on your left shoulder. Oh, okay. All right. Ordinary people, this is a, this is a burden beyond bearing, even, even knowing what you can do or what you can't do. People couldn't figure this out, but you see lawyers, They can find the exceptions. They know the traditions enough to know that they can pretty much get away with doing whatever they want. And if you see them maybe looking like they're breaking a law, I'm sure they've got a reason. No, 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 no. See, Hezekiah in the third year, you know, uh, he did this thing one time and I'm pretty sure he did it and it was okay. So it's okay for me too. You know, they, they appeal to some anecdotal thing. The people are burdened, but the lawyers really don't have to do any of this. They can quote some rabbi that says they don't have to. So, so that's the first charge Jesus lays against him. You bind burdens on other people, you don't have to carry. The second thing is the way that you honor the prophets, Jesus says. It looks like you're showing them so much respect by building these incredible tombs 
All the while, you're acting just like your father's previous generations that killed the prophets. By building these elaborate tombs, you're just finishing the work your father started. You're giving assent to the murder of the prophets. It's always easier to honor dead saints than it is to respect and live with living saints. And it's easier to memorialize dead prophets than it is to listen to the living prophet in their midst. It's easier to love ideologies than it is to love people. And that's what Jesus calls them out on. And Jesus predicts, you're gonna keep right on treating the prophets the way you always have. These apostles too, these men with me, Jesus says, will be mistreated. From Abel forward, Israel loves to silence the messengers of Yahweh. So you're gonna reject me, Jesus says, and you're gonna reject my apostles, and you're gonna kill us, so what is all this about purity? What, what, what is all this business about hand washing and, and tithing your weeds when you hate and kill God's messengers? Do you not see the, 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 the disparity there? Do you not see how confusing this is? So Jesus delivers that final woe, just summing up the case there in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering you hindered. Your job is to make God's law clear and lovely and to teach it in such a way that people understand it and obey it and glory in it. But you've done the opposite of that. You've turned God's law into something that actually prevents righteousness. You've blinded yourselves and you've blinded your followers and you, you've disqualified yourselves from being leaders and teachers in Israel. And so to wrap up this chapter, verse 53, as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. <laughs> so he says, look at you. You don't listen to the prophets. You kill the prophets. And they get so angry, they plot to kill him. <laughs> Basically, this is, this is uh, their, their dullness and their hard-heartedness. Like they always do, they go right on and they prove his point. Well, whatever we, whenever we read these sections of Scripture, we're apt to be super tough on the Pharisees and their attitudes. They are really easy targets. But how far really are you and I from their behavior? Anytime you have a group of people who are really interested in right living, in faithfulness before God, who are, who are serious about doing what is right and just, it doesn't take very long before we start interpreting God's law into new ways and assuming that our applications are as important and as vital as keeping God's law itself. It always begins with the best intentions. But before long, if we aren't thinking about what we're doing, if we're not exercising wisdom, if we're not constantly repentant for all the ways that we might be led into error, it becomes full-blown Pharisaism. You and I both have known churches and families who've been torn apart by secondary issues. That, that certain diets are the only way to live faithfully before God. That, that certain things are completely and totally off limits to Christians, whether it's card playing or dancing or drinking or owning a television. I've got a friend who doesn't own a television. He tells everybody he doesn't own a television, but he's, he's, up, he, he's up on all the TV shows. He's seen all of them because he has a computer. But he doesn't own a television. He's never owned a television, right? Uh, well, that's, that's the law that he follows. Uh, 
matters of education and childbirth and contraception and all other health issues. They, these all become absolutized as if there's no room for wisdom, as if there's no room for disagreement among faithful Christians. Obviously, if you were really a Christian and you really were faithful, you would do things the way I do them because I've got this all figured out. I figured out the perfect diet and the perfect health plan and the perfect retirement plan and the perfect job, the perfect career path. And, and if you were faithful, you'd do what I do. You'd do things the way I do them. My preferences are the standard, obviously. I've just got this all worked out. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is the way behave. We, we behave. There are so many fatal problems that flow out of this. One of the serious issues is what happens to the next generation. We think that the only way to make our children and keep our children faithful is to be sure that they're living up to the expectation, the external standard. The outside of the dish has to be spotless. And you know what? With these little vessels, you can get them really clean by cleaning up the outside. You can enforce a lot of rules to multiply rules the way that Israel did. But what gets lost often, I'm afraid, is real abiding knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I can get my kids to fear me, but, but I want my kids to love and fear the Lord because he's with them even when I'm not. And if they deeply know the one who gave himself for their sins, they will want to please him, not only with their actions, but they'll want to please him with the secret hidden thoughts of their hearts. They, they'll want to please him with their words. And those are things that I cannot change through external application of a multitude of laws. So, so legalism does one thing. It, it turns the second generation into hypocrites a lot. And, and that's another issue that legalism produces hypocrites. Like the lawyers Jesus corrected, always looking for a loophole. Here's mom and dad's onerous, burdensome law code. Here's this, here's this cultural list of expectations for me, but I can find the holes. I can find, did you do this? No, I didn't do that. Did you do that? Nope. Sir, didn't do that. But I know where the holes are. I know where the gaps are. You learn how to be sneaky. I know because I grew up in a fundamentalist church and I knew where all the loopholes were. And so did some of you. You know where they are. Legalism creates an environment where the law is hated, not loved. We're always looking for a way out of it. We can't live up to it. It's a burden. It's so suffocating that we have to get out and we have to find a way out of it. So we sneak around. The third thing, the third problem with this, this legalism is that it convinces you that your righteousness rests in your own standards. Your righteousness rests in your own respectability, in your own work ethic, your own good manners, your own righteousness rests on you alone. Yeah, I need a little help now and again. You know, I need a little boost. I need a little Jesus every once in a while, you know. But I'm sailing right along in my own righteousness. That's a lie. That's not the gospel. Righteousness is located in Jesus Christ alone. It's not in you. It's not of you. And it's only by your union with him, your abiding in him, that you're able to do anything that God says. That is the lie of legalism, that your righteousness rests in you. It rests in Jesus alone. So what is the pronouncement of Jesus against all of this behavior? Does he say, well, you know, you guys... Come on, fellas, you're trying really hard, and I know, I know you're doing good work. You, you get a few bonus points for trying to be extra holy and trying to keep everything pure. I get it. 
you're, you're trying really hard. Is that what Jesus says? No. He says, whoa. What does that mean? W-O-E. <laughs> woe means judgment and sorrow and heartache and great calamity is coming upon you if you don't repent. Woe upon you if your head is so clouded that you can't tell the differences between your preference and God's law and you elevate your cultural expectations to the same status as God's law. Woe upon you. Woe upon you if you believe that God is just satisfied with your good manners and your polite behavior and God just overlooks the mean-spiritedness and, and God overlooks the hatefulness and the greed and the lies and the gossip and the lust in your heart. God looks over that. He just loves how, what a good hard worker you are. Woe upon you. Woe upon you if you judge people with one measure and apply a different measure to yourself. That's what Jesus says. We tend to assume, and I'm going to wrap it up with this, we tend to assume that we're always on a continuum. That, you know, there's legalism over here in this ditch, and there's antinomianism, lawlessness, over here in this ditch. And we're just trying to keep a little balance here. You know, we're just trying to, trying to stay in the middle. The truth is, the truth is legalism and antinomianism are both the same thing. They're both disobedience. One is not more pleasing to God than the other. <laughs> Legalism is not more pleasing to God than antinomianism. We are on a teeter-totter trying to balance antinomianism and legalism. We must reject both and say we need something completely different. We must have wisdom, spiritual wisdom, capital S, wisdom that comes from the Spirit, that hears God's law, hears God's word, thinks like God thinks, and applies it to the world skillfully and giving others room all the time to grow in wisdom as well. What it came down to is why Jesus was so hard on this generation is that God didn't establish Israel and bless Israel and give them his law so that they could be judges of his law, so that they could call the world defiled, so that they could call the world filthy and, 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 uh, and feel better about themselves. He gave them the law so that they could obey the law. Not to be judges of the law, but to obey the law and lead the world in faithfulness and obedience. To intercede on behalf of the whole world in right worship before God. That's why he gave them his law. So it's the same for us. The revelation that we have received is not a gavel with which we condemn the world. We always act so surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. Oh, my goodness. Oh, look. Oh, we faint and think, oh, my goodness. What are they doing? What, what do we expect them to do? They don't know God's word. They haven't heard his spirit. They, they haven't listened. They haven't paid attention. They don't know what's right. They don't know up from down. And we act so perplexed. Oh, they're acting like unbelievers. Well, yeah, they are. God hasn't given us his revelation so that we can have a gavel to condemn the world and act like we're shocked. It's not our job to be perpetually shocked over everything. No, we've received this revelation so that we can be faithful to it and to lead the world in faithfulness. That's what Israel failed to do. That's what Israel was judged for. That's what the church must get right. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we worship you and we adore you. And we ask that you apply these things to our hearts. Help us to reckon with them. 
by your spirit, help us to understand what you're telling us here and how we might apply it to our own generation. Deliver us, we pray. Deliver us from hard-heartedness and closed-mindedness and legalism that would, uh, that would prevent your spirit's work in our lives, in our families, in our church. Uh, do not let us become hypocrites. Deliver us from this as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.